Well, hey there, Rodcast listeners. Uh, just a heads up here before we push play on today's episode featuring our guest, Al Kirschenbaum. Please note that about half or three quarters of the way through the interview, you'll begin to hear Al ask questions and ask for verification on some certain things and stories and details from a certain Harry who is seated in the room. Now, we are pleased to say that this would be drag racing legend Harry Hibbler. Now, Harry had just arrived at our studios to wait his turn for an interview that we had had scheduled with him immediately following Al's. So, as luck would have it, and as you'll hear, these two go way back, both as friends and as employee and employer, and it was it was just good luck on our part that we scheduled things this way, and we only wish we were clever enough to plan such things because as you'll hear it was a great addition to Al's interview to have Mr. Hibbler in the room and we think you'll agree so just that little clarification to avoid any confusion for the listener and so now without any further ado sit back and enjoy another great episode of the Rodcast featuring our friend the great Al Kirschenbaum And now, live on tape from Speed Shop Sound Studios in North Hollywood, California, it's The Rodcast, brought to you by your friends at the American Hot Rod Foundation. And now, ladies and gentlemen, the host of The Rodcast, David Steele. Now, that is what I'm talking about. There you have it. We are back again, back with yet another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the fine folks at the American Hot Rod Foundation. Thank you for that fine introduction, Larry Babb. What a fantastic episode we have for you today. I cannot tell you how excited I am about this one. Now, I'm sure that Many a hot rodder out there can identify with the following. And it's something that I'm I'm proud to say was handed down to me by by my late father. And that is a kind of far-reaching appreciation for all forms of either racing or cars or era of both. You know, although, you know, as we all do, I I have my sweet spots of interest. 1940s and prior dry lakes racing, the beginnings of drag racing in the late 40s, early 50s, early 60s super stock, you know, immediate post-war sports car racing in the U.S. But uh, yeah, I, I mostly find myself jumping from one era or form of racing to another, trying to learn everything I can about the cars, the drivers, the tracks, the technology of the day and the cultural and global influences that shaped it it's all interesting to me all of it i can get just as excited about a split window volkswagen as i can an 8c alpha um well almost but uh this brings me to today's guest 
I've been so excited to talk with Al Kirschenbaum. Ever since I was introduced to him by our mutual friend Dave Wallace, I've been dying to go back and talk to this guy some more. You know, another one of my little pockets of focus is the muscle car phenomenon of the 1960s. I, I continue to find it fascinating that Detroit went as far as they did with such primitive technology. I mean, these cars didn't corner, they didn't break well, but that didn't seem to stop Detroit from marketing these bias ply shod sedans with, you know, well over 400 horsepower to beginner drivers. I mean, this is crazy business, and it's never been a surprise to me that this movement only burned bright for, uh, you know, eight or nine years before being soundly extinguished. I, I also will, will admit to having two muscle cars in my garage, both Chevelles uh, with one of them, my 71 Supersport being my high school hot rod. It was my first car. The other car is a bit more substantial. It's my late father's old 69 Chevelle SS396 375 horse convertible. And yeah, uh, a real car with a bench seat and a four-speed and the paperwork and all that. And it's been in our family since I was a kid. So these cars have had an influence on me and, you know, were really the rolling classrooms that taught me how to work on cars. My my 71 Chevelle provided me with a test bed to, to kind of go back to over and over taking that 3,800 pound car from its like truly embarrassing first pass down the quarter mile. I'll never forget it. 1675, that poor thing. <laughs> but you know, today it's a mid 12 second grocery getter. And, uh, you know, not that that's, but you know, by, t by modern car standards of today, 12 seconds isn't even remotely fast anymore. It's crazy. That's like SUV fast these days. But, you know, put that power in the middle of a lot of old technology and things get pretty thrilling pretty quickly. So that's why I so wanted to talk with Al Kirschenbaum. Al was there in the day as cars like this were first being developed. They were being street raced, uh, being drag raced. He saw the progression from late 50s sedans to early 60s super stocks, which is something I can't comprehend seeing go down and in front of my eyes in such a short period of time. As you'll hear, Al was deep in the early muscle car movement and rode that wave all through the 60s and out the other end and has the kind of perspective that really only someone who drove and tuned Max Wedge Plymouths, Hemi Darts, 446 packs, you know, when they were the latest and greatest things, only someone who was around that stuff in the way he was can have this kind of perspective. Not to mention the fact that, you know, he was a frequent flyer to Detroit for these kind of quote-unquote performance seminars, which cracked me up. You know, basically, this added up to guys like Al and Dick Landy and the Sox and Martin guys standing around and listening to Chrysler engineers talk about the wild race only applications that 
they're going to come up with and how to either hide them when racing on the street or trick the NHRA techs into believing these things were legal because, you know, hey, after all, it's got a part number on it from Detroit. So anyway, as you'll hear, Al is a wonderful storyteller who saw some serious and unique forms of hot rodding when growing up as a young gearhead in, of all places, New York City. Yes, I mean, this is what proves that if hot rodders want to hot rod, they will hot rod where they are, (laughs) no matter the surroundings or inclement weather or traffic or bad roads. They figured it out just like everybody else did. So that said, there's a whole lot more to Al Kirschenbaum's story than what I'm outlining here. And so now, without further ado... Let's get into this latest episode of the Rodcast with our guest, Al Kirschenbaum. Well, I start every interview the same with the with the rudest question of all, I guess. If you would state your your full name and where and when you were born. Alan Stewart Kirschenbaum, Brooklyn, New York, 1944, in the back. And what does that mean in the back? Punchline from an old joke not worth repeating. Okay. <laughs> but it was the old Jewish couple that moved to Florida, and they says, oh, you should come see us. We live in the Magnolia. In the back. Send it in, I know. <laughs> and what, what was life like for you when you were a kid? Um, you know, punch ball, stick ball, roller skating, bike riding, taking the bus to go see the Dodgers play at Ebbets Field. Bus stopped almost right in front of my mom's house. The last stop was half a mile from Ebbets Field. Go see the Dodgers play. Cousins come to town, go to the Bronx, go see the Yankees play. Not really a lot of cars. We had just whatever the old stuff was that got us around. 49 Plymouth. My first was a 50 DeSoto, which I inherited from my dad. Um, And after that, we stepped up to a 57 Olds. So I got some interest going in cars. The neighborhood was uh, just the usual Yahoo hot rodders, nobody that I really got interested in hanging out with until I got a little bit older. And then I was just amazed at all the garage lights that were on at night and roadsters and sedans and coupes. And you couldn't, you know, couldn't get into the guy's yards because of the dogs or the fences, but I couldn't believe all the hot rod activity in Brooklyn, New York. So I lived, uh, I, I just finished telling Michelle, we, we lived uh, 99 miles from a whole bunch of drag strips. So it was a major effort to go to Wingdale, New York, to Dover or Atco, New Jersey, to the Atco or Great Meadows, New Jersey, to go to Ireland. And eventually English Town came around in 64, 65, and New York National Speedway with Ed Eaton about the same time. So we had a few more tracks to choose from. And I'd spend my summers in a small town in upstate New York, and I found they had a drag strip in the adjacent town. So I checked it out in the wintertime in between seasons, and it was a a grass median between two strips of pavement, quarter mile, South Glens Falls Dragway. I didn't see any posters outside, but I have seen some from South Glens Falls. So Which, Which is where, and I don't know where that is in upstate. 50 miles north of Albany. Oh, okay. Maybe 60 miles okay. north of Saratoga, south of Lake George, south yeah. of Lake Champlain, yeah. a little bit west of Vermont. So uh, well, it's in the middle of nowhere. It was a drag strip. Yeah. Two south lane. of the Adirondacks, really. Oh, right? in the Adirondacks, I guess. But yeah, 
in, mm. in the midst of them. And that was a real drag strip. And what year would that have been that you had gone there? Uh, late 50s, 58, 59. So you were 15, 16 years old? I was, I was 13 and who remembers, 60, 61. Um, I had friends with uh, more cars than I was ever able to afford, so we started uh, playing whatever they whatever they were playing with. My uh, my one buddy had a uh, he was a little bit a couple of years older, and he was drafted with the uh, the call up in '64 to Germany, but he had a uh, a 1960 Comet, a four door, precursor of today's Chargers, but it was a Holman Moody in line six with three carburetors and ISKI cam and a three-speed on the floor and straight pipes, twice by each. And it was, opened my eyes. And that was just a little tiny, little 170 cubic inch six cylinder. So then we, uh, when we, we swapped that for a, we made a Comet with a 283 Chevy between the frame rails of the Comet and escalated from there, 58 Pontiac, a high school, I had a, a wonderful high school experience. I, I still can't get over how lucky I was. Is uh, New York City had three or four special schools that you could take a test and get in. High School of Science, which wasn't my bag. Stuyvesant, which was a, I don't know, sort of an elite brain school, but there was also Brooklyn Technical High School. All boys, 6,000 fellow students in one building. And it was, uh, just, just a great experience. We, uh, the, the school had shops that included a two-story ranch-style house being built inside the school. We had a radio station on, we, the school had a radio station on the roof with a broadcast tower. And then on my end, I mean, there were chemical labs. We had a foundry. We'd go to a pattern-making shop and learn how to make woodworking patterns. I wasn't particularly good at woodworking. Machine shop was was more my thing. But then we'd take these patterns we'd make in a foundry out of wood and up to this foundry that was three stories tall with a glass roof and we'd pour our patterns, we'd pour molds in lead or cast iron or whatever we, whatever they might have been melting at the time. So it was a great beginning to get, put everything together and say, oh, okay, here's where it starts and in the machine shop you can finish off the pieces that you cast and the, just no, no end of experience. And in our, air, I took the aeronautical course, and uh, we had an, AT, an North American AT6 Texan in the shop that we'd all take turns working on. We'd make, replace the rudder, or we'd replace the horizontal stabilizer, or take some instruments out of the dash and try and figure out what they did. Right, right alongside, we had an engine shop. The first engine I worked on was a, a seven-cylinder Kinner radial aircraft engine. And the, uh, I won't forget it because I was a little bit older, but we had to take a final exam. And we got, I got along well with the teacher. Um, he bagged me on one question. And the accessory case in this radial engine was a whole mess of gears. One for a magneto, another for a magneto, an oil pump. And it was one gear that I just I couldn't figure out what it was for. So I didn't flunk the course, but he never forgot to rag on me about the gear that synchronized the machine gun to fire through the propeller. Oh, so, yeah. <laughs> you know, and then I moved up to a nine-cylinder Kinner and a few, I don't remember what the right, right Cyclone B-29. 
my God, a multiple row radials, and we get surplus from the government, and this is what we work on in school. So it was, it was industrial processes, metallurgy, machine shop, math, some math and science and stuff like that, which I was never very good at, but the hands-on classroom stuff was great. And I ended up being the school welder. My uh, dad was a welder at Todd Shipyards during the Second World War. Never taught me nothing about it, but I guess I inherently, by osmosis, picked up some of the technique, and I just was an oxy-settling marvel. So much so that the school had me going fixing things around the school, pulling me out of class. As a result, I flunked a lot of <laughs> math and English and, you know, the uninteresting subjects, history, it's classical civilization. But I go out and did my welding, and it was great. So it was, uh, it was worth it. I had to spend an extra six months in high school, a left back, an admitted left back. But um, I finally got out with a bunch of 40 or 50 other super seniors, and uh, it was the best education I could hope for. 6,000 guys, no women's, not one. I mean, some teachers, but you know, we were too young to know anything. And now it's a co-ed school with about the same amount of students. Yeah, I was gonna ask if the school still exists. Oh, I saw pictures you know, on Google street, street maps an unbelievable facility. I just had no idea. It took up almost a whole block, you know, short ways and the long ways. Terrible neighborhood, Fort Greene section of Brooklyn, right across from Fort Greene Park. Um, historical, a lot of historical stuff went on. I didn't know anything about it for years later. But that was, uh, that was through high school. The teacher, teacher I had for my engine shop class was interested enough to stick with me when we were building our Pontiacs in the early days after the Comet, the, the Corvette-powered Comet, we put together some Pontiacs, and he had an automotive shop in downtown Brooklyn, probably where Barclays Center is now, where all the concerts and best the Nets play, and, and he was my, my mentor. We're gonna try and bore this thing a little bit, we're gonna do this, we're gonna do that, and we could never get the car to run really well because we were using three-speed, six-cylinder manual transmissions, but this dude took me under his wing and got us through the machine shop stuff, and, and we did okay. We, we didn't break any motors through stupidity. We just never went really fast. The what, funny, I was I went, gonna ask what his name was. Bob Krauss, Robert Krauss. So I was gonna go on with the story. When I got my first job at a car magazine in Manhattan, must have been early 70s, the publisher's walking around, and I'm eating my lunch at my desk and trying to put out a magazine. I was a so-called managing editor. I didn't know what a managing editor did. But he says, oh, you're new here. He goes, come on to my office. Tell me what you're up to. So when I mentioned this guy, Bob Krause's name, he said, he's the only man I let work on my cars. He does, that. he was he lives next to a neighbor on 43rd Street or something in oh, Brooklyn. Wow. So we had a good, a good rapport. And that was the days of, uh, I don't know if you remember Marty Short, Cars Magazine. Roderick Superstock, Speed and Supercar, just a whole bunch of uh, Phil Engeldrum type rags, pulp mags. Um, you know, and I worked there for a few years as a managing editor and wrote some stories. Gave Norman Blake his first assignment, where actually he came in with a written story and I needed to fill some space and we used it. So he's, uh, he still credits me with that, uh, that initial the story that he had published. Probably 73, I guess, 72, 73. Huh. So what did you do when you got out of high school, out of this? I graduated six months late. 
Uh, there was no major rush to go to go to work, but I went to work for uh, uh, an engineer in Manhattan on Forty uh, Second Street, right across from the Daily News Building, and they were a structural engineer. I had always known them as civil engineers, but buildings, architecture. Right after the architect did it, these guys designed the steel, the concrete, the rebar, poured the you know the slabs that they would pour. I was just, you know, ignorant. I was a drafts person. I was pretty good at drawing. I had a fair hand lettering style. So I scored a job for 60 bucks a week to, as an office boy and a junior draftsman. So I stayed with them for oh, quite a few years until somebody said, hey, if you want to make any real money, you got to quit and then come back, which I did. And it, it worked for a while. I got into their architectural department. We specialized in trucking terminals, warehouses, uh, industrial sash, acres of industrial sash up and down the block, mostly in Maspeth, Queens, where they filled in the Newton Creek and created more open space and land to build industrial buildings and trucking terminals on. And um, I worked for them for a few years, then went to work for uh, a failures investigator, a, a top-rated highly regarded uh, engineer in New York, Dr. Jacob Feld, and he just investigated failures. So they dragged me to Houston when the runway collapsed at the airport. They dragged me to the Coliseum in Manhattan when uh, something collapsed there and it unfortunately killed a few people. A another great experience. And I was learning my technique, trying to uh, avoid the draft, um, go to Brooklyn College at night, uh, couldn't, couldn't avoid the draft when McNamara called up 225,000 or more in 67. I was following, <laughs> following my draft notices with the draft board, and I'd call up every few months a buddy of mine, neighbor, and uh, three days older than I was, or I am still. We'd be checking with the draft board. Hi, who, who, what are you calling now? What, what month, what year? Trying to see when they'd get to uh, our date of February 44. And then the last time we called, uh, the lady couldn't find our papers, either of us. Why? Because they were on a desk. They were getting ready to send us to the infantry. And I wasn't particularly in favor of the fighting in Vietnam, but uh, all my cousins were in the military. That I should back up a little bit and say that's how I learned to write, because these guys were in Korea and Germany and Japan. And I'd read magazines like Mad and Cracked and those, you know, children's books and end up writing them my version of what I'd read in the magazine. So that was my writing experience. So we had um, great conversations and I learned a little bit about typing two fingers. I go to my mom's office and I type on her underwood two fingers and write stories to her nephews, my cousins. So that was, uh, that lasted for well, quite, a, quite a few years into the late 60s, I'd say when um, the draft was on top of us, I joined the Navy and uh, had to go do my due diligence as a parachute rigger, which I learned on a top fuel dragster. No, I, nobody was teaching me. They just, yeah, just tuck those little rubber things and the cords and the shrouds in there and then pack it up. And it was Richie Bandell who bought the surfer's old car, one of the surfer's old cars, surfer's two. And um, I lettered his Corvette that he had before that. It was just a C, B modified sports car 
we had, uh, we, when I'm talking we, I mean my, my group of pals that used to hang around together and mostly small block Chevys that included a B Gasser, the Shot in the Dark, Bob Kremnitzer, uh, Ira Orshan, Ira Nocam, we called him. He had a, he was a very wealthy young man. Dad was uh, with a major insurance company and he had a beautiful Corvette, 60 Corvette, The Mouse That Roars. Shot in the Dark was another Peter Sellers reference to one of the cars. And these guys could afford Hillborn's injection. You know, all I knew was WCFB carburetors and grew up to, to AFBs and then AVSs and then, and then some Hollies. These cars were injected. And we had belt-driven injector pumps that would, you know, we'd had to work out some way to keep the belts on the pulleys. And we'd run those tracks that I mentioned earlier throughout the New York area, flat towing. The only thing that we trailered was Bandel's top fueler. Uh, and we'd just, you know, go all over the East Coast, just getting to as many races as we could. And I uh, just, you know, I added up all, the, all of the experience to become a parachute rigger <laughs> in, the, in the U.S. Navy. So getting back to the, to the war, to Vietnam, what happened with the notices that were on this woman's desk? Well, we were getting drafted. My buddy Steve and I, we got bar mitzvahed together in 57. We were butthole buddies. He played guitar. He thought he was Buddy Holly. He was actually pretty good. But um, I think he had to go away for a while for some misdeeds. And I... Um, took the advice of Richie Bandel's brother, Bobby, both of them should rest in peace now, and signed up for the U.S. Navy, where I uh, pursued parachute rigging because of my experience with his brother's dragster. So that meant I would be able to uh, pack my own chute, jump from a plane, and train in New Jersey, which was an advantage. But uh, I never got that far. I tore up my knee, jumped on a fence, had to have surgery, uh, cartilage removed, and things like that. And, Finally, the Navy said, gee, I don't think we can send you on active duty like that. And I said, sorry to hear that. But I was, you know, I was relieved. I mean, I'd lose, I'd been losing not a lot of friends, but acquaintances from high school, names I knew, folks I ate lunch with and hung out with, were going over there and not coming back except in a box or a bag. Mm -hmm. So that was, I was trying to avoid it. Um, but when I... Uh, I wore my dress white uniform to register for Brooklyn College night school and got spit on. Mm. And that um, made me more interested in serving and doing my part, doing my duty. But uh, I wasn't particularly tough, but um, got into a lot, of, a lot of skirmishes with ignorance. I mean, just the same we see today. So that was, uh, that was quite uncomfortable. So I, uh, I got out of the Navy I don't remember when, but they sent me to the big military hospital in New York, examined my knee and said, I'm sorry, Al, we can't, Alan, we can't let you uh, go on active duty in this condition. And I said, oh, gee, but I was actually quite, quite pleased. Mm -hmm. So I spent uh, two years, April, April 65 to November 67, serving uh, some active duty for training, some active duty and some reserve duty. But I finally uh, skated out and managed, managed to avoid going overseas. But like I said, lost a lot of pals in the process. Yeah. You know, you, you mentioned a, many examples of this car, that car, these guys, this thing, this blower setup, this injection unit. 
all of that involvement, what is that that you're doing? Are you just volunteering to help guys get their you exactly. know get their cars down the track? Nobody got paid, you know. Pit pit sure. crews were pit crews. But what, you were these. Are you a partner in the cars? Or no, what? no, I was. I didn't become a partner in a car for quite a while after that. Um, but the uh, the Bandel crew was pretty well established. So let's see. I don't know where that took us up to uh, the late '60s. I was working for the engineers in Manhattan, and um, a buddy of mine, the guy who owned the Comet with the Corvette motor in it, his family had a friend who owned a Lincoln Mercury dealer in Brooklyn. And we'd uh, socially met uh, a few times together, and I heard he was buying a Dodge store. Not a particularly good part of town, but it was more my kind of car. Um, my cars back then were, like I said, a 49 Plymouth, a, a 50 DeSoto, a 57 Oldsmobile. And uh, then I started getting interested in Mopars. This guy had a store opening. So um, we told him, you need to get into performance, high performance. And I had to explain it starting at square one. So uh, he was um, open to it. So I got a job working in a parts department. Didn't know it at the time, but we were among the top Dodge dealers in the country. At the time, I think there were 3,500 or 4,000 retail Dodge stores. We were in the top 10 consistently. Wow. We had a great location in a bad area of Brooklyn, but an awful lot of gypsy cabs. Those were before Uber and Lyft. And medallion cabs, even, they would just put a sign on the door that said taxi and take you where you wanted to go and didn't hesitate to go to Manhattan or LaGuardia or wherever it was you, you wanted to go. So I, I learned the parts business. I had uh, the, the guy that um, mentored me in that was uh, not an old man, but he was a couple of years old, over on me, married, a lot of kids, taught me everything he knew about Chrysler parts. And for some reason, whatever it was, I, I picked it up pretty quickly. And, after a while, the owner was more interested in what we were doing because we'd have exhaust manifolds and headers and manifolds on the intake manifolds and carburetors on pegboards on the wall in the parts department. And we were selling taxicab parts, control arms when they bashed the curbs, control arms when they hit a sewer. But we tried to get a performance thing going, and the owner was a little more accept, you know, amenable to the idea. So little by little, we started dealing in high-performance parts. We advertised in uh, Superstock magazine. I would create the ads with press type, uh, very you know amateurish, but still, you know we got them out there. At the time, we also had a a legitimate source to a backdoor at one of the automakers, where we would buy byproducts, surplus, leftovers, obsolete stuff, and if we could look up the part numbers and reference it to an actual model, it would be easy to sell. So I would get uh, free trips to Detroit to go look at the piles of parts or bins of carburetors or manifolds or whatever it was that was being offed from this automaker, and we sold them on our own. So I had my own little business on the side. And that was per those were performance parts or any kind of parts? At the time, it was any kind of parts. But we got access to a lot of performance material in Detroit, and... Um, Little by little, we got you know a little bit more hardcore. The um, Chrysler would hold a uh, seminar in Detroit every April, or yeah, April, May, June around there, and um, I had a chance to go and learn 
with the big guys, and I was just, you know, just a kid. But uh, when the uh, 68 Hemi darts came out, I was uh, very more than curious. I asked the boss at the Dodge store to buy me a ticket to D Detroit and let me get to all the schooling and the knowledge and ask the questions and get educated from people that I really didn't know, but I'd read about as heroes for many years. And um, he refused, so I said, well, I'm going. So my partner, Howie, who was the machinist in our little group, and I jumped on a plane and went to Detroit, unbeknownst to us, as written about in one of those Hemi Dart stories, we got to look at the very first Hemi A-body, Barracuda Dart A-body, that was built, that Chrysler had put together as an experiment. And we'd heard rumors about this, but I had no idea that it was feasible, doable. And there was one right in front of us, Crossram Hemi 426, Torque Flight Trans, big fat rear end. It was a 67 converted to a, to a Hemi car. And we were like, oh, what is this thing? You know, what, what are we in for? Back into the seminars where they would talk about anything you wanted to talk about in performance, from, from chassis construction to uh, spring rates to promotion and paint, anything it would take to get a car and put it in front of the people and put asses in the stands and get it rid up in a magazine somehow. So that was, a, that was a good little opportunity. My God, yeah. Uh, Can I ask you a couple of questions? Absolutely, about that? I'll slow down. Okay, for starters, I want to make sure we get the name of the dealership that you worked at, if you didn't mention it already. It was Ebbets Field Dodge. Ebbets Field Dodge. Ebbets, E-B-B-E-T-S, was the place where the Dodges used to play in Brooklyn before they left for Came L.A. Here, in 57. Yeah. Yeah. So this was right up the street from where the stadium actually was, on a corner in a main intersection. And uh, Ebbets Field Dodge, home of the Brooklyn yeah. Dodgers. And what year was it that you started to work there? I have to go by the, demo, the demos that they gave me. I had a 69 dart demo, so it must have been 68 or 69. And, but uh, you were working there when you went to Detroit to see the oh, heavy Oh, yeah, dart. yeah. I took a, so that would have been 68. Yeah, that was uh, 68, right. Yeah, I was working there in 60, 68. Okay. Selling parts, selling cars because I was, I didn't take any time off for the holidays. I was just a, you know, not a workaholic, but I just didn't want to miss anything. Too much stuff was happening, so I'd fill in and I'd sell cars. And after I'd be selling, selling cars, selling parts, and after a while, I sold this. I worked the service desk in the service department. We were a very, very busy store. An awful, an awful lot of people coming through there. So that uh, you know, gave me a good, well-rounded education and learned my way around the Chrysler warranty system, which could be ad advantageous. My, my dad had a 63 Polara that was under warranty for 50 or 60 years, I think. But I mean, it, was, <laughs> it was quite an extended warranty coverage on a 383 air-conditioned four-door. So that was um, you know, a nice advantage to learn my way, what they did with the old parts, how they inspected, how they, how they determined if something was really wrong, or whether you were power shifting on a cobblestone street. Mm -hmm. And that's how you broke the rear end. But yeah. it, was, you know, it was a great education. I had to sit through a number of court cases where customers were you know, disappointed in the service that we performed, but it was usually a case of you know, driver abuse. So I learned a little bit about uh, the legal end of things and appearing in front of the judge. And 
I don't think we were ever taken for any any big payouts, although I put myself in the place of the customer easily because I felt I was right off the street. Yeah, yeah. So when the, the dealership there um, closed, not closed, it was sold to a uh, an affirmative action group. It was uh, you know, a great group of uh, black guys came in and took over the dealership. We got along swell. They continued off and, you know, if I tell them we used to do, we used to do it like this, they, they'd rather do it my way because it was for the customer satisfaction. But the old dealer, the guy who used to own the Lincoln Mercury store and who opened Ebbetsfield Dodge to begin with, opened a store on Long Island. It was 40 miles from where I was, but it was a former supermarket converted to a dealership. Mm. Basement, upstairs, second story, body shop, used car lot. It was just, it was just great. So at my first opportunity, I relocated mm. and made a 40-mile drive each way every day to work in the parts and service department at the Rockville Center Dodge, C-E-N-T-R-E. And um, I feel like I know this dealership. Well, we sponsored uh, quite a few race cars. We had a, a really nice arrangement with the Ram Chargers for a few years when we were buying their quarter panels for re relatively low money. We were getting approached by racers left and right to, you know, help them out. And I'd always help guys with parts and deep discounts. And there's guys who say, I remember you, you sold me that drive shaft. That was great, you gave me 20 off or whatever it was. But we had, uh, we had a good relationship with the customers and we opened a high performance dealership with um, brand new carpeting. And uh, not, not long after we opened, I convinced the dealer that we needed to host one of the Dick Landy performance seminars. It was a clinic at the time. So Sox and Martin, the Plymouth uh, Hemi racers and wedges, and Dick Landy on his end would run cars all over the country, but they would also um, give seminars at the dealerships, at certain dealerships, wherever they, wherever they could be booked in. So we, uh, I got to be pretty close with Landy. Um, he was an, interest, an interesting man. He, uh, he knew how to listen, which was, I think that was what we offered at the dealership because we had a telephone, hello, Chrysler. And they would say 28, 26, 34, 44. And that was the part number. I mean, they, we'd get fed information right from the source. What flex plate, what converter, you know, how can we use this? How, what's the spring rate? We had a, a direct connection at the time before it was direct connection. Hmm. So we had, the Landy seminars were there. Then we'd go out to New York National Speedway or wherever they were match racing at the time. Those were the days of the Superstock Nationals. If you remember when Superstock Magazine was putting shows on at York with all the door cars, I mean, strictly door cars, I think. Then they moved it to Long Island to New York National Speedway. We had, you know, opportunity to go out and set up there. It was just, uh, it wasn't star tours, but it was great. We did radio and TV shows with local personalities, bring the racers along, set up cars for them to hammer down the drag strip without braking. So it was, you know, great all-around promotion from one end to the other. You mentioned about going to Detroit, that you would go to these seminars in Detroit, and you'd meet your heroes. If I heard you right, I think so that's So to speak, yeah. Who are we talking about? Well, anybody you can name that ran a Dodge or a Plymouth with doors on it back then. So it would obviously be Sox and Martin and Dick Landy, Don Grothier. Uh, the Ram Chargers guys? 
they were they they attended the seminars and and really included their input as answers to questions from the racers and fans and there weren't that many fans but it was um the ram charges were definitely involved we sponsored the, you know their funny car when they were when uh, the israeli rocket leroy goldstein was driving for them um but before that it was uh you know name every plymouth and dodge racer that you could think of with a door car and they'd either come to us for parts certainly not for advice but we picked their brains as best we could and figure out what to do. We even got Landy to do a burnout in the service area after the seminar. Uh, that was a supermarket at one time, so there was no structural considerations for 10 and a half inch slicks and 600, yeah. 600 horsepower and a two ton Dodge Charger, but that place rocked. I mean, it physically shook. No, no plaster, nothing came down, no damage in the body shop, but. That place just, he popped a clutch on that thing and it was just uh, one of the most awesome things I've ever heard mm. or seen or experienced, but it was, it was cool. And it almost made up for the brand new carpeting in the showroom was not ready for 800 people to traffic through it for the seminar, oh. 800. I mean, there were other, door, other stores that did better, but we had 800 people drawn into the boss's showroom, which he just couldn't conceive of. It's, couldn't get his jaw off his chest, except for the cigarette burns in the carpet. Uh, At least 800. So uh, I was a non-smoker. I wasn't thinking. I did not have extra ashtrays set up. But the whole, every hole in the carpet that lasted for all the years that I worked there, he point, he point and say, remember that. I remember where that came from. I said, I remember 800 people couldn't get in your doors. Mm -hmm. So I think they, I think they sold a couple of cars. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I wasn't selling at the time, but. Huh. It was a great experience. Great. Experience. So it sounds like leading up to your time at this, at well, at the first dealership, even the first Dodge Chrysler Plymouth. It sounds like that was your brand. Like that's who were those the racers you followed? Were you? Yeah, it was mostly the the racers I'd followed, the local guys I knew who were going fast with cars that they bought from Chrysler Plymouth or Dodge, and. I was learning from them because they were learning as soon as they got the cars. So I'm sure nobody remembers Joey Bambase um, and his 11th Commandment Plymouth Superstockers. But I'd known him since his, uh, he got a 62 Pontiac Super Duty. And I met him at the gas station we both patronized. And I, my jaw was on my chest. And 421 emblems on the aluminum fenders. I knew him as a you know reputation. I knew his cousin. I said, Joey, you got to take them emblems off. This has got to be the ultimate sleeper. And he goes, No, the fenders are aluminum. I don't know what I would do. So it was just you know it was just a shock. It was a, a 421 solid lifter, Super Duty, maybe McKellen number 10 cam in it. I don't remember how fast he went, but when he got tired of that, he bought a 64 Plymouth Hemi, Super Commando. I was actually on the street when the car rolled into the transporter at the dealership when his blue Plymouth Commando was hauled in. And I was on the street, 61st Street, adjacent to the Sea Beach Line subway tracks where the car was abandoned and stripped many years later. Oh, and it was, you know, no doors, no hood, no windows. It was, it was pretty trash when we got it. But the door hinges were aluminum, and nobody stole them because they didn't know. They were painted blue like the rest of the car. Yeah. 
found the hood hinges in my garage not long after that. It was, that was the only thing left. But it was the car itself, uh, uh, Joe Black, a local uh, local uh, drag star, Woodlam, had campaigned the car for a while, and every, everybody knew Joey, but he was the one who, I'm reasonably certain, disposed of the car in, in that manner. Was, was there a lot of street racing going on in, in, the, in that area? That's all there was. Uh -huh. 99 miles from the nearest drag strip until English Town in 65, like I said. But yes, yeah, street racing was a thing. Tell me about that, about the street racing scene and your memories of that in that well, the area. Last time, the last time we chatted, maybe four years ago, I mentioned that we had some street cars that we managed to get parts and pieces for from the corporation. And I said, I wouldn't be willing to talk to you about it until some of these guys had passed on, and most of them have. Not the important ones, but um, we... See, that's um, why I waited, Al. One of my, waiting those guys out. One of my trips to Detroit, we got to go to um, performance product planning. That was, it was just product planning, but there was a bunch of guys, small group of people, that was performance product planning. And once we had our little tour of the offices and got to eat lunch with them and, and shoot the crap about the parts and what was coming up and what was hot, I went home and drew a cartoon, as I often do when I don't have a camera, um, depicting this office setting where they were playing with slot cars and fetching coffee and lunch and everything else. So at the time, this was 1964, Dave Kofel's wife, Susie, was a school teacher, and she had a short series of articles in Giant Superstock and Drag Illustrated magazine called Diary of a Drag Racer's Wife. So I didn't commit it to memory, but I retained quite a bit of it. So when I finally got to meet Dave Kofel, Susie's husband, oh, I read that whole thing, and you did this, and you did that. And they were all suitably impressed by my retention of crap published in a Alexandria, Virginia, you know, rag. So we got to be pretty tight, and I had an open phone line right to the performance product planning department, mm -hmm. which later became Direct Connection, which later became Mopar Performance as we sort of know it today, even though it's a distant ancestor. So it was one nice connection. The head guy, Dick Maxwell, he's, he's gone now. He had a 63 Plymouth Hemi car, unheard of. I had a 63 Plymouth sedan, just, just like his, with a big big wedge motor in it. So we hit it off right away. We had an awful lot of stuff to, to talk about. And Tom Hoover, the father of the second generation 426 Hemi was was in attendance and we got along really well and I managed to ask him some questions that at least kept his interest up and never hesitated to give me straight answers, straight answers, which I would in turn pass along to our customers or people who bought cars from us or people I was trying to sell cars to. So it was a, it was a great group. There was you know, a couple of fringe people, but after a while, I got to meet most of the folks that were involved in the prototypes and the production, and great, great experience. Well, I have to ask you, because this is infinitely fascinating to me, the, 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 just the idea of what you, what you touched on a minute ago, the idea of those, what I consider the greatest super stock cars of all time, okay. you know, 60 to 64, five right in there i love those cars and the idea of uh 421 super duty pontiacs and max wedges and 409 chevys and 
high performance Fords and you name it, you know, <laughs> the, the idea of those just roaming the streets like they're five liter Mustangs, you know, like they're just around and they're the car to have and they're the car to beat and those are the cars that are street racing. Um, I'm just a little too young to have caught that. Um, I, I, to hear from somebody who was right there in the thick of it, and it sounds like, and this is amazing to me, that you've kind of glossed over the fact that you owned a Max Wedge. No, no, no. My, my brother owns one now. Okay. But um, no, I had a 63 Plymouth that was just a $2,483 Plymouth with an optional automatic trans and a push button radio. And that was it. No rear defroster. Okay. No nothing. It was just so you had a, a base model car. Yeah, you know, thirty-four hundred and five pounds, I guess. It was three hundred and thirty horsepower. I bought it used from my partner Howie, who got drafted in '64. And uh, I'm not ashamed to say, the first time I planted my foot in it and it kicked down into low gear, it threw me back so hard my foot came off the gas, and the car, you know, nosed over like a like a girl driver. But I mean, that was that was the experience. It was a, it was a 383, 330 horse, 323 gear torque flight. So that car. I bet is, that was a quick car, though. Oh well, it was, yeah. and it was no you know no muss, no fuss, no solid lifters, no multiple carburetors. With those gears had probably hooked up and went on the street, and it's probably well, a pretty consistent car. Yes, it was, and it, it beat more cars than it had any right to because we had access to these byproducts, these surplus parts coming out of Detroit. So one year, we actually got to go to Detroit, inspect these parts that we were going to bid on, and ended up buying, I'm guessing, maybe 50 rear ends. One of them said R. Petty on it. It was blue. We had, we had ratios that nobody had ever heard of, and telling them to you would only bore you, but there was no 342 to 1 production. That was a GM, a GM ratio. We had 342s, 373s, not a Chrysler production ratio. We had them go up from there. We had 512s, 538s, 550, and 583 to 1 center sections. All you had to do was get the axles out, take the center section out, put the new one in, bam the axles back in, and you change the gears. Yeah, it loads, it loads in the front like a 9-inch Ford, right? Exactly, exactly, a center section like a 9-inch Ford. Well. I ended up beating on that car so bad, and I should mention, it's, my brother still owns it. It's still in the family. Wow. 446 pack in it now, air conditioned, but. But you bought it new. No, I bought it used. Oh, you, my, you did say Howie you bought it bought it used. for $2,483 from Geffner Motors in New Hyde Park, New York. He got drafted in 64. I bought the car, my dad bought the car. I don't remember how the payment worked out, but I got a loan from the family. Is this the car that replaced the 57 Olds? Yeah, it would have been. Was the Olds a J2? I wish. I had a tri-power set up. I had an SD <laughs> cam for it, but I'd ne I was never brave enough to do it. One, one weekend, my folks were going on a trip, and I was out tuning it up and changing the oil, and I blew a lifter in it. And they were, hello, where are you? We're waiting. We're leaving. That was one of my first good hands-on experience, diving into the Olds and buying some parts at the parts store and fixing the tappet and the rocker arm and the push rod I think we bent. But yeah, the 63 Plymouth came after that. I never owned a Max Wedge, I would drool. I bought the books that came in the glove box of those cars that told you all the horsepower and all the part numbers and the stuff you wanted, but I, uh, I never owned one. My, 
I can't even think of my first new car was probably a, a 95. You know, I mean, we never we never had what it took to get uh, new cars back then. But one old buddy of mine, who also now departed less than a year, had bought a secondhand 62 Plymouth that had been a max wedge. It was currently a 361 four-barrel, three-speed on the floor. And Stan sold the car to my brother. My brother got drafted and had to go off to Fort Sheridan in Chicago, near Chicago. So I took the car apart and put a nice 383 in it with an automatic and a, and a good gear. And he came home on leave one time and took the car back to the base with him. Blew the trans on the way to Chicago. It's probably the only talk flight that any of us has ever busted, except for you know an all-out race unit that had too many passes on it. So he's, I got pictures of him in the barracks in Fort Sheridan with his talk flight, take, taking it apart and replacing all the parts that we sent. We sent him a whole trans from the dealership. So that was, uh, that was a car that he recently, a year ago, restored on its 50th anniversary, wow. put a 413 Max Wedge, a little bigger, but it's a 413 Max Wedge, and he, the, the three-speed uh, transmissions that they used were very rare. I mean, you can hardly find them anymore. Yeah, so the heavy-duty three-speed. He put in a four-speed. Mm -hmm. uh, common common Chrysler upgrade. Very nice, very nice. I haven't seen the car in its current form, but I've seen videos of it running, and it's pretty impressive. You know, two-door post, nothing, cloth seats, you know, some vinyl panels. Yeah. I, I, his doesn't even have a radio. It's a, it's so it'd a be a 330? Radio bleat. Mm, as a, it was a Savoy. The next above the, the Dart, the cheapest Dodge Dart was a 330. This was a Savoy. Oh. Then came a Belvedere, just like a Dodge 440. Then a Fury, which was like a Dodge Polara. Sport Fury was a Polara 500. So they had all, all my dad's Dodge was a Polara with air and tinted windows and a 383. And I don't think he ever climbed on it, but it was, it was an impressive little car hmm. for a, for a four door with tinted windows. I have to tell you real quick, uh, my best friend from uh, grade school, who's still my best friend today, uh, his dad was quite the street racer, and his first new car was a 62 Max Wedge. Whoa! And it was a, um, what I understand to be a very rare car, it was a 415 horse, heavy-duty three-speed, post with the 440 trim package. Woo! So a really unusual, unusual yeah, combination. Yeah. Navy blue with a navy blue interior and a rubber floor mat and all that. Yeah, rubber, rubber mats, sure. Yeah, and... Um, You'll appreciate this because you, you touched on this earlier about the warranty stuff. He was uh, 17 or 18 when he bought the car. His father co-signed, and he was racing it all the time. This is in Buffalo, New York, Buffalo, New York area. And three-speed car, and he was up against a, a shockingly strong 406, 405 horse Ford convertible at that, which could stay with a max wedge, which is just unbelievable. Right? Yeah. Yeah, tri-power car. And uh, they were neck and neck, approaching the line, and he knew if he shifted to third, he was going to lose. So he just oh. wound it tight. And on the return road, it starts bogging and bogging and bogging because he spun the bearings. Oh, damn. And so his, he takes it to the dealership, and they don't want to have anything to do with it. Well, you've been racing it. It's, there's no warranty. This is a race car. And his father, who was quite a tough dude, writes to Chrysler and says, how dare you sell this car made for racing to my boy? He does with it what you designed it for, and now you won't stand behind your product. 
And so the dealership called, amazingly, and said, bring the car over, we'll, we'll go Excellent. through the motor. Excellent. And they went through the motor and he kept on racing it. <laughs> and that car is still around. Oh, um, but anyway, I, so you've got your 63, 383 car, mm -hmm. and you're, that's kind of your personal test bed. How long did you have that car? What did you do with it? Did, did you ever get ETs on it or did you street race it? It, uh, it ran a 1402 stock. Wow. No open exhaust, 99, 100 miles an hour. I don't Damn, remember. That's such a quick car. Oh, it was. It right was. off the show. Uh, Atlas was. Bucrons, you remember? That's free, what, was, free that was, what was on my buddy's dad's. Yeah, Atlas Bucrons. Uh, yeah. It, was, um, it was a fun car because it just didn't require any work. It would run in the winter, it would run in the summer. Then in 67, uh, I bought a brand new 440 short block from the factory. I uh, sent a guy in uh, Pasadena some bucks and he sent me a pair of stage three heads and a cross ram intake manifold. So I built the motor for that car that was a hydraulic cam. All the max wedges were solid tappets. This was a hydraulic cam, cross ram, no heat to the intake manifolds because the, the intake manifold, because the cylinder heads didn't have any heat crossover passages. Mm -hmm. So it was very tricky to get going in the wintertime. I'd have to uh, manual choke one choke knob, both carburetors choked. Chrysler. It was brilliant. <laughs> so I'd have to start the car, warm it up for five or ten minutes, and then shut it off and let the heat soak up to the intake to make it drivable. But that was my full-time ride, was a cross-ram max wedge, and I tried, you know, 583s and 293s, every gear ratio that I could play with. Don't, I don't think I ever took it to the track to run times with, but I remember the, um, the Ford dealer in White Plains, it was probably White Plains Ford, had a couple of 67 Fairlane 427s. Oh, man, the R-code cars. Um, well, they, yeah, 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 they, they were all cars, right, right, 427. Yeah. Uh, I don't remember if there was single carb or dual carbs, but I was out at New York National Speedway, and they'd line us up four across. There was four-lane, you know, Charlotte-style racing, and I'm in the max, not the max wedge, but it was a soft 440 max wedge-style car, mm -hmm. and uh, boy, the lights went green, and I just left them, and they pulled me top end. Of course, the exhaust manifolds, I should have mentioned that the 63 with the 440 had a max wedge exhaust system on it, which meant the cutouts, the exhaust cutouts, were built into the system from the factory. You would have to open these four bolts and take the plates off or just swing them off to the side, and you'd be able to bo open both headers on both sides. It wasn't a great exhaust system, and corked up, it was a definite detriment, but that was how easy they were to open. So I left on these Fords and, you know, half-tracked them. I mean, they pulled me at the very top, but uh, that was it. They were factory-sponsored race cars. I was a black Plymouth, you know, sedan off the street that drove to the track. Yeah. These guys came in on, you know, on trucks and trailers, flatbeds. I don't remember what it was. So you probably did a lot of street racing in that car, I would think. Yeah, it was mostly, uh, mostly on the street, informal stuff. I thought there were too many, like I say, yahoos, doing stupid stuff with their new cars and their, their home builds that I didn't really want to be in the next lane from. Mm -hmm. But you get suckered into these things and, yeah, you went first. No, you punched first. Let's do it again. So I'd end up ending, you know, I wasn't the fastest car in town. There were a lot of 66 Chevelles 
that you know showed me the showed me the way to the lights. But uh, it was it was pretty quick for its for its time. Well, and you hear about the street racing scene in, in and around New York City as being pretty dicey, like a pretty tough thing to like people are betting a lot of money and there's kind of a, a potential for violence and no, too many no, people would show no. up, like when they were organized. No, it was still, it was black, white, brown. There was never any racial stuff, really. I mean, well, I'm I not, didn't necessarily mean that. I just meant maybe, you oh, know, I mean, too fights, much money on the line. Who and, first or stuff yeah, like that? Yeah, stuff like that. I mean, once, once in a while. Yeah. I, uh, maybe that came later. Maybe that was an early 70s kind of... I could back up a little bit and go back to Ebbetsfield Dodge, where we had a lot of customers from the neighborhood. And in 67, uh, the uh, Hemi came out in the GTX and the Coronet RT and the Charger RT. And uh, some of our customers came in and said, you got one of these things I could put on my um, GTX? I said, oh, GTX got my interest. I said, what is it? And he shows me a motor mount that was split, or uh, a motor mount bracket that was split. So uh, I said, I can have that fixed up for you in no time. He goes, he goes, can I wait? And I said, no. But we delivered it to his gas station. This was my introduction to the legendary New York street racers, the Mutt Brothers, M-U-T-T. -T. It was uh, Jesse and Benny. So we're back, we're back to Crown Heights, Brooklyn. Uh, the dealership was at one end of Bedford Avenue, at the other end of Bedford Avenue. I took the motor mount that we'd welded, I welded, for these guys and went back to the gas station where they had a 67 Hemi GTX that they were street racing exclusively. And uh, they said, do you know anything about these cars? And I said, well, they knew. I, I really don't. You know, I knew about the Crossram race Hemi, but the street Hemi was sort of a stranger. Um, and they said, it, you hit the throttle and it falls on its face. You know, you got to put a sponge on your forehead to stay off the steering wheel or the windshield, the no airbags, obviously. So I said, oh, that's, you know, a lot of them have that problem. You know what to do that? Sure. So I took the tops off the carburetors and adjusted the floats. On my key ring, I had a float gauge, which was just a natural for any Chrysler guy back then. And three-quarter inch drop, seven-sixteenths inch rise. Took the top off the carburetor, set the floats, bend them, put it back together. I said, try it. And they, went, they reached for the, the roll of greenbacks in their, in their pocket. And I was smart enough to turn him down. And he stuffed a 50 into my shirt pocket because I couldn't, I couldn't get away from him. Come on, you guys are customers. You know, you're in the store all the time. But they, uh, they went out and did pretty well with the car. This was the uh, legendary Mutt Brothers. They went on to campaign uh, Hemi Dart, or more than one Hemi Darts in their group. Mm. And so a few years after that, I got a call from um, the Chrysler PR guy in Manhattan, Pan Am building, 47, you know, was it 42nd Street, whatever, the Pan Am building, right in the middle of Park Avenue, about 47th Street. Um, can you come up to the office? We're going to have lunch. Oh, okay, sure. He takes me out to the Sabrette stand on the hot dog stand on the corner and feeds me lunch and asks me if I mind consulting with this group of black racers in Brooklyn. And I said, oh, I know some black racers in Brooklyn. What's the deal? He goes, they're trying to get Schaefer beer. Anybody remember Schaefer beer? I think they were tight with the Dodgers back in those days, the Brooklyn Dodgers. And um, they want to try and arrange for some kind of sponsorship. So my, uh, 
I was connected with a guy in Cleveland named Paul Putka, who also departed, and his brother Andy also departed. They led me to Carcraft Magazine and Steve Collison, to make a longer story shorter. But we put together a program for these black dudes, really just, you know, they're like brothers. I mean, it was just people we hung out with, and the, the color really didn't mean anything. And we accompanied them to Schaefer Brewery in Brooklyn, beautiful brick building, you know, all modern stuff, and pitched, pitched them on, I won't say sponsorship, because that's a little too straightforward, assistance. You know, a case of beer out the back door, we could sell it and buy some fuel. It was, it was a, good, a good arrangement. We did not get the deal. The group was the Black Contenders. I still have parts of a press kit that I put together for them, probably the copy, not the photos. And these guys went on to be real serious street racers. Levi Holmes, Pro Stock, uh, Rufus Boyd. Now, it's not a name that you mentioned lightly in Brooklyn because of his association with a lot of un unorthodox dealings that he had, but he was just one of the few that I knew there was a crossover between illicit stuff and street racing. Um, like I said, Levi Holmes, Tad Talmadge, um, Jesse and Benny were the, um, the pivotal points, you know, the guys that we really got along with well. And it was another, another great experience, plus we, we got to make their cars run like they should. They, uh, the Rufus Boyd cars, and I think some of um, one of the other guys, they bought very expensive race cars from Sox and Martin. They tow them home or truck them home, go out to the track, and they'd run 10 flat. Great. Next weekend, 10-10. Next weekend, 10-25. Mm. Back to Sox and Martin. They put her on the truck, drive to North Carolina. Burlington was right around the corner, just a punching coast down the Jersey Turnpike get the, the motor freshened up or whatever might have been slowing the car down. They'd come back and start running 990s and then 10 O's and then little by little taper off until I had to take the car back to Sox and Martin. So it was, uh, it was a nice crew. But those guys, uh, I guess the, uh, the biggest money race I ever was witness to, I didn't see the race, but I was at that gas station, Jesse's place, and there was a suitcase. <laughs> And as I later came to be aware, it looked like there was over 100K in greenbacks in the suitcase when I saw other masses of greenbacks that added up to about the size of the case. So there was some kind of run on South Conduit Boulevard that's out by Kennedy Airport that was coming off at O'Dark 30 and I was not gonna be around. And, and I think they, they took the suitcase home with them too. But of course, you know, nobody won every race, but it was the street racing stuff was, you know, was edgy. And on the edge of the edges was, I mentioned Bob Kremnitzer, Seagas, uh, 44, the shot in the dark. He was tight with Freddie Denaim. Freddie Denaim was hooked up with the murder machine, uh, Roy DeMeo, nobody I ever associated with. Um, but he was a pretty wild, pretty wild individual. And probably out of all those guys, black, white, green, or otherwise, Freddie, Freddie was the wildest. I didn't know about his connections to the family, so to speak, until years later when he was selling cars on the pier and mm -hmm. things like that. Freddie's also also gone. Huh. Bob Kremnitzer, I have no idea. And that was all Flatlands, Canarsie, Fountain Avenue. The Fountain Avenue was a, another street racing venue, um, really out in the boonies, but until the mob started using it as a dumping ground, it drew very little attention. When they started, it had a lot more. A lot, a lot more coverage. Man, and it just, 
I mean, you're, I don't know if you're actually saying this, but I'm sure this was the case. Th these guys are probably street racing things like Hemi darts and AFX cars and, and things like things they could buy from race teams that were last year's model and yeah, some, I mean, some of them were. I mean, the Sox and Martin cars were obviously real race car built for racing on the drag strip that got street raced, no end. I can't say I was ever party to any of those contests, but I, I did see them from afar. I mean, we'll be heading out to some place and we'd see the crowd of cars and we'd know what was going on, recognize some of the tow trucks or the flatbeds involved. And so we, we knew, knew what was happening. I have a silly little question. When you saw the Hemi Dart in Detroit, was it in primer, or was it a painted car? No, it wasn't a dart. It was a 67 Formula S Barracuda that uh. had been converted uh, to a Hemi car by the race group, so to speak. Gotcha. But it was, uh, it was red and white. I've seen photos of it as recently as 10 years ago. It, mm. it was in pretty nice shape, but just the thought of such a thing actually taking place. And I'd been to seminars the 65 cars, they were all covered in the seminars, but you know, they were big two-door sedans. These were A-bodies, you know, 110-inch, 108-inch wheelbase Barracuda, 110-inch Dart. So these were, you know, cars that we could really relate to. And not an awful lot of the best went out street racing. In later years, Scott Shafaroff, uh, Long Island pro stock racer, Dennis Ferrara, uh, I think he was a uh, comp cars, he used to, he used to run comp cars. All of them had some kind of connections with, with street racing, but I, you know, I couldn't be everywhere. We had our own little drive-in, uh, maybe a mile and a half from where I was living. We'd get together there on uh, weekend nights and then go over to the um, Verrazano Expressway. They, they, the Verrazano Bridge was a, a wonderful blessing when they built that. 63, 64, 65 in there. It took a few years to build it. But we used to race on a lower level before it was open to traffic. Oh, wow. So it was... Uh, Tell me about that. Oh, the noise alone was just, uh, was just deafening. It was just a great place to race. You know, we'd drive up with a bunch of cars. The guys who were blocking would spread out over four lanes behind us, and the two cars that, us, the two cars that were racing would pull up and get flagged off, and that would be the run. And that was usually your 63 that you'd be? No, no, I don't think I ever ran a car on the bottom level of the Verrazano. I was... Oh, you just were oh, there. Just attending, yeah. yeah. I don't think I ever ran a car on the bottom level. But I almost got killed towing the Comet. We were towing it back from a track in Jersey on the Verrazano Bridge. And uh, we were towing with a 66 Tempest, brand new car my buddy Steve had just bought. And uh, an old man didn't see the car and tow sign, and you know, we were hooked up, car and tow, car and tow, hit, hit us right between the tow car, on the tow bar. We had a safety chain, snapped that, and the Comet, no engine running, no brakes. I mean, yeah, we had, we had whatever brakes were in there, plowed into the wall of the Verrazano Bridge, one of the guard walls. So it was, we were fine. I mean, we managed to get pushed off the end of the bridge, and I mean, the, the actual ramp of the bridge and get, had get pals to tow us home from there. But uh, at the dealership, I was telling the story of how we had just about gone off the edge of the bridge like this kid did in his Mustang. He rode these huge, must have been five-story tall concrete abutments at each end of the bridge covered with snow. He went over and rode it down and did not survive. 
But the woman who was working in the parts department at the Dodge store said, that was my nephew. Oh. Oh, yeah. Oh, how the heck would we know? I mean, what a... No, too coincidental yeah. to believe, but it was, it was him. He died in his Mustang. Hmm. So the approach to the bridge, the upper level opened first, the lower level opened second. The approach to the bridge was extension of the Gowanus Expressway, which was an extension of the Brooklyn-Queens Expressway, where we would have a lot of late-night contests, whatever. Yeah, mine's faster. No, mine's faster. Oh, yeah, well, roll it out. We had a lot of contests up there. And he did the expressway... I won't give you the nickname for the expressway, but it was a, a gangplank of some sort relating to the Verrazano name, who was Italian. So we had our own gangplank name. But we had a lot of street races down there. We'd pull onto the freeway, the freeway, the, the expressway, and the guys would spread out and block the lanes behind us and just have at it. Shut down and go our separate ways, you know, keep the cops apart. And, yeah. So I'm a, my, my um, homeroom teacher in junior high school, ninth grade, had his house torn down to build that expressway. Hmm. He was booted. Yeah. The state bought him out. Yeah. yeah. Yep. Exactly. Um, it sounds like guys would show up to those street racing events all in cars, all on the move. Or were there actual spectators who would line the road? Oh, yeah. Most, I'd say there was more spectators than racers. How many people would show up sometimes? I don't think I ever saw more than four or five hundred on the sides of the road. But it was... Wow. <laughs> I thought you were going to say, eh, not more than 30 or 40. <laughs> oh, no, no. I mean, some, some of the ones that I just drove by where there was a contest going on were probably more than that, but I never counted them. But literally three or four hundred people. Easily. Uh, you know, any Friday or Saturday night right there on the street. So do you think the cops just kind of knew this was going on and just had better things they to do? They were more reasonable. You know, we weren't, we weren't getting into fights. We weren't wrecking anything. Mm -hmm. We weren't, uh, I think the first graffiti I ever saw was on a subway that said Sir SLB rules. And that was a band called Sir, L Sir Lord Baltimore, the, one of the earliest punk bands New York ever saw. Hmm. And uh, even the graffiti was disappearing because we didn't want to attract attention. Yeah. I'm not saying we, meaning me and the masses, but everybody sort of understood that we were getting away with a lot of crap and we had to take it easy. There were police strikes where we'd flag off 66 Chevy against a 66 Plymouth police car on some of the tracks. Now, the main, the main track I guess I have to bring up is only because it's been in the news lately, at least with me and my pals, was called Marginal Street. Now, Marginal Street was uh, right along the waterfront in Brooklyn, right along the, um, the shipping piers. And Marginal Street was a Marginal Street, but it was also named Marginal Street. It was called the Marginal Street because it uh, marked a demarcation line be between the city police and city authorities and the Port of New York Authority, meaning the port. So. Nobody knew who was going to enforce or who could enforce or who would enforce. But we were racing. I mean, the ship's prows were right above us, and we were blasting down this four-lane, three-lane street, blocking the side streets that intersected. And I guess there were at least, I remember, three people dying there, including a, a Motion Camaro or a Nikki Camaro. I'm not certain. 
but the guy drove it into the bay. No, no, he, he drove it off to the side of the road where it hit the berm. We were walking down again. I said, oh, look, I found the fan belt. Oh, it wasn't the fan belt. It was the ring gear off the flywheel. But it was so Whoa. distorted. I thought it was a rubber fan belt, but it was steel. Oh, my God. You know? And uh, we, uh, we disposed of the car right there into the bay. Oh, right my off, God. Right off, right off the piers. It yeah, a, must have been an $8,000 new car. And uh, yeah. uh, Nikki or Emotion, well, imagine my, what I'm pretty sure it was probably a Motion, motion Because they were on Long Island. Yeah, right. Joel Rosen. More right? of them, right, exactly. Um, I mean, that, that's a six-figure car all day long today. Now, yes. I, I back, mean, back then, solidly. 6500 <laughs> $6, bucks, and you get another one. Oh, my God. But that's what they did. Bruno, Bruno had a, a 70 Camaro, which he didn't even know how to drive. I don't even remember Bruno's last name, but he was a good passenger shotgun seat guy for me because he was bigger than most of the other guys we raced. But he had a, it was a funny car. I mean, it was, it, it, <laughs> this thing would rock. I mean, it had no shocks in it. It was just a, a, a lightweight eggshell Camaro with a huge motion Bill Mitchell you know, 600 and some odd cubic inch engine. And, and it was an automatic, so he could drive it, but he didn't know how to race it. Hmm. So it was just, that was like a $6,500 car back then. My God. So uh, it, most of the cars you're seeing in these street races uh, are 60s muscle cars, would you say? Oh, definitely. Yeah. If I could uh, back up a little bit to the uh, story of the disappearing dart, it was um, a Car and Driver magazine test car. Car and Driver magazine was in those days based in Manhattan. I, uh, I worked less than a block away from their office for a while for the, the failures investigator, Dr. Feld. He was right around the corner from Car and Driver magazine and the newsstand in that building always got Car and Driver early. But anyhow, there was a um, 69 Dodge Dart 440, 383, 440, yeah, probably one of the, one of the Mr. Norm specials that was stolen from an editor at Car and Driver. He parked it on the street in Brooklyn, got what he deserved. The car disappeared. So Chrysler PR said, Al, what do you know about this? And I said, I just, I know these guys are out there going to the local drag strip and going fast in front of the crowd and they even beat some Fords and Chevys while they were at it. And they said, are they doing us a disservice? I said, if they kill somebody or hurt somebody, of course, but I don't think they have so far. So I pretty much defended the guys who I knew, the thieves. Uh, Georgie Reddick, last name to be unmentioned, and Joey Klepto, who was the hot shoe. Joey Klepto. Joey Klepto. <laughs> so we're riding in, um, I think, Charlie DeSaro's 68 Cougar. 428 Cougar, wow, what a, what a hauler. I mean, it was like a Mustang, but luxury. Yeah. Philco, AM, FM, stereo. What a and, rare car, too, 428 Cougar. Oh, oh yeah. That's rare. XR7, oh, I think that was the number they used then. Yeah. So we're at the- Hideaway uh, headlights, right? Don't remember, sounds <laughs> familiar. Anyway, sorry. We're in the drive-in <laughs> where we were, all, we were all hanging out at the time, and uh, we uh, pick up uh, Georgie Red X, because he had a 67 Red GTX and Joey Klepto. And uh, 
Joey asked Charlie to get out of the car and he wanted to drive and I was in the shotgun seat. We drove around the corner and Joey reaches into his belt, well he did it with his hand, and puts a 38 against my back of my head. I said, you know what? You know, what's the, what's the cause of this? He goes, we heard you turned us into Chrysler Public Relations. I said, well, yes, I did talk to them about your antics, but I didn't turn you in. I, you know, I didn't rat you guys out. I probably bought you some time by telling Moon Mullins that you were probably doing Chrysler a solid by running this car at the local drags in front of the fans and beating Fords and Chevrolets. So what's bad about that? Well, the car was stolen. Well, that's not the point. Car and driver was going to write it up the same way they're writing it up now, that you're beating these Fords and Chevrolets. So he tucked the weapon back into his belt. But that was probably the only time I was ever, you know, I didn't get nervous. I was laughing because of the story that really involved me sticking up for them and them just, you know, thinking that I turned them into PR. But that was not the case. And Moon heard about both ends of the stories, too, of course. He's gone. I have no idea if those guys are still around. But uh, I think uh, Charlie DeSaro might still be there. He had that Cougar and traded in on a 67 RT 440. Smartened up. But uh, never, it, was, it was nowhere near the car that that uh, Mercury was. It was just bitching. Just wow. bitching. So that, um, I don't know, where does that take us up to in years? Well, I, I, I'd like to hear just kind of your thoughts and memories on what it was like to be absolutely in the thick of what is now becoming the absolute height of the muscle car era. I mean, things are now getting to the point where you've got Cobra Jet Mustangs. I mean, well, you've got the full-out factory race cars like Hemi Darts and... You know, not on the street so much, but you know, you you can now get the 425 horse Hemi and a whole host of Mopar products. The LS6 Chevelle is about to make its appearance. I mean, it's now about to reach its zenith. Uh, what was that? Do you remember that time in any kind of way? Like you thought, man, I don't know what's going on, but where's this going? No. Just like you, when, you st when you're in the middle of it, it's just life. Yeah. It's not that we had no perspective on it. Like saying, you remember the 40 Ford with the flathead? Well, yeah, but that was, you know, years ago. What about now? You, you just, there was so much stuff going on. I don't think there was, you know, other than my memories of going to the drags and watching friends win, lose, uh, you know, enjoying themselves and uh, probably being responsible for some of their performance to some, to some degree. I, I had a great crew at uh, Rockville Center Dodge. Um, two of the three guys are gone now. You know, one guy could do a talk flight with his eyes closed. The other one could, you know, put in a cam with his eyes closed. I could try, but I don't think I'd be as good at it. But the, these guys were the, uh, the stars of the show. They just, uh, they got everything running every time and were, you know, pretty good diagnosticians. And of course, we had animosity in the shop because the old line A mechanics who'd been doing that stuff for years, just, you know, we, were, we weren't making any more money than they were, but we had like fans. People would come and ask for different mechanics by name or me or the parts guys. Al was mentioning that uh, you guys had your own fans and you were gonna interject there? Or? Yeah, I just wanted to hear more about that. You said. Guys, are these like younger guys with fast cars who would just come around? Contemporaries. And... Oh. I mean, we, we had guys 
doctors, dentists, wads of cash. We would build hemicudas for the drag strip for these guys, you know, imitating Sox and Martin, but not being anywhere, you know, near the prowess that they had. Uh, I even took one, one fellow was a dentist, I think it was Dr. Sherwood. We built him a hemicuda, took him out to the track, and he says, I don't know how you do it. You just get in and drive the thing, and the doors open, and you're just so cool about this. And it was really nothing. These were 12-second cars. These were not monsters. But when we got back to the Dodge dealership, I had to take him to the local Sears store to buy tools. He didn't even own a wrench. Oh, wow. But he was enjoying his experience with his Hemi Cuda. Uh, another car I sold at uh, Ebbets Field Dodge went to a doctor who bought a four-speed Super B Hemi. And now that I watch it on television, this is one of two of these <laughs> that were ever built. You know, I don't remember what color it was or what the options were, but they only built two of them, and his was one of them. Oh, my God. And, these, and you guys these, sold that car. And we sold that car. Um, we, had, we had more clinics in the years that followed for Landy, uh, never for Sox and Martin. And like I said, when we... Uh, when we went to Detroit to look at the 68 uh, Emmy Darts and Cudas, we got an okay to floor plan one at the dealership, and they ordered it, and it came in on a double-deck trailer, just like you see pulling, you know, whatever's, whatever's being delivered to dealers, and the, the trucker was hinky. He was just like he didn't even want to be bothered talking to any of us, and we had the, the Dart. It was on the top level of the truck, and it looked like it was beat to hell. It was primered and, you know, it just didn't look like a whole car. And this, this guy, went, he said, just stand back, stand back and let me do go about my business. And he rolled these Monaco station wagons and Dodge Polaris and Dodge darts off the truck. And, and then he keeps looking up at the dart, you know, and he thought it was, you know, it was beat to hell and thought maybe he had something to do with it. So he goes, I'm not going near that thing. And he unchained it, he took the wheel straps off and my buddy Stan and I climbed up and it was a lift off hood. So we lifted off the hood and the guy went freaking nuts. He thought we, you know, we really trashed the car by taking the hood off the car and putting it on the roof. He'd, he'd never heard of such a thing. But um, we, I rolled the car down onto the street and uh, checked the oil, checked the trans, checked the plugs, turned the key and it lit right up like it was a, Polara. So wow. we, uh, I, I think I wrote it, one of those pieces that I wrote about was particularly that experience of going to Detroit and getting our car delivered. And eventually I, um, they felt they were stuck with the car because it was primer, had black gel coat fenders, mm -hmm. primer body. Two of the windows were busted because it was thin, 40,000s Chemcore Corning glass, really thin, not laminated. Yeah, maybe it was lamp. No, it wasn't laminated. It was tempered, 40,000 tempered chemical, and two of the windows were busted. One side of the exhaust system was laying inside the car over the seats because it, it had headers from the factory. From Actually, the cars were built by, converted by Hearst. Mm -hmm. They were built by Dodge and then sent to Hearst to be converted. And this thing came in like it, was, it looked trashed, but as I found out from talking to other buyers and dealers that theirs were worse. Some got no fenders because the factory ran out or the, the vendor ran out. So we ordered new windows and most of the first ones we got came in in pieces. 
and then we cleaned up the car. It had little stickers. First, the big sticker we saw when we first got up to the Dart on the top level, it said, warning, this vehicle, vehicle to be shipped on the lower level of all ground and rail transportation. <laughs> Underline. I said, well, that's one that he blew that one. Yeah, that was, <laughs> so we got that, we got that on the ground. It had another sticker on the broken windows, which was a beautifully yellow tag that Chrysler printed up. No warranty, due to accelerated, supervised acceleration trials only, no warranty expressed or implied. So I did save the sticker and the glass from the window, which I still have. No not kidding. Wow. It was quite a nice piece. And I saved another, another sticker that had no glass on it. But um, the car sat, and um, we attracted an awful lot of traffic to the showroom. And uh, they were finally, the boss and the controller were getting tired of seeing it on the floor plan. And it didn't look good on the floor of the showroom because it was gray, gray primer with dog dish hubcaps and black wall skinny tires. It, nothing sort of matched. Mm. No antenna. We got the windows in, they put the windows in, they went to the service manual for a 70 Dart or a 68 Dart and looked it up how they would do a customer's car and put the new windows in. Everything was fine. I finally had to quiet the owner and the controller down by saying, okay, okay, I'll buy the car. What's it gonna cost me? I think it was 4,200 and change, which was the deal of net. Um, customer price was over six grand, I think, or about six grand. So I said, okay, take my, my next two-week paycheck, and that's my down. I don't know how much I was making at the time. It couldn't, couldn't have been a lot of money. Um, but uh, they said, okay, and we pulled the car back into the make-ready department and left it there, and I wasn't able to come up with any more cash. And one of the guys I had gone to the Detroit seminar with was a racer, and he owned a speed shop on Long Island, name of uh, Joe Jill Speedwin Automotive. Not the best reputation for their work, but um, they had the money to come and buy the car for me. I don't think the car ever went really fast like it should have, like, like the other cars, but uh, Joe was at the seminars and was being told things that he didn't agree with and he probably knew too much to pay attention. We just, hello, okay, bye, and we did it and we went fast. He couldn't do that. I don't know, that's his problem. Hmm. But that was, that was the end of the dark story. I, I, I wrote it in that story. I sold it out from under myself. And now it's got to be, what, six figures minimum? Oh, minimum. You know, you know, as a new car wrapped in saran wrap, it would probably be a million-dollar oh, car. Oh, easily. And that's why I asked if, it was, if the, what actually turned out to be a Barracuda conversion that you saw in Detroit. But that's why I asked if it, that car was Primer. <laughs> Because I privately owned at the time. No. I thought they were all delivered in primer with the gel coat fenders. The yeah, they darts. were. They were. But this one was already painted and yeah. trimmed out as a what is a Barracuda Formula S. Yeah. Was I think the upscale model with buckets and a console and eight and three quarter rear end had quite a quite a bit of stuff in it. So when I wrote up that story, this must have been thirty some odd years ago. It was owned by a guy in Arizona, and I knew who owned it at the time. Mm -hmm. The Dart had been bought by a guy I met, you know, just going to car shows. And uh, he says, I own your old Dart. I said, what Dart? And he said, the Hemi, Hemi Dart? Uh, yeah, so I, you know, let him dribble it out to me and he's, he was restoring the car. It had never had the wheel wells, or the wheel tubs cut. No kidding. The, the wow. wheel wells, I should mention, were pretty shabby because they just, 
hog them out for clearance. They didn't yeah. move the springs inboard or the hangers for the springs and the springs inboard. It was, it was pretty shabby looking, but that car had never been cut. And some guy named Pete Matuzak restored it in 89 and I lost track of the car after that. But I know somebody who helped them with it, so we're still in touch, and I could probably get back, you know, back together with them. Did you ever have a chance to drive it? Yeah, I went from the trailer <laughs> on 775-14 tires uh -huh. <laughs> with a Hemi torque converter and 486 to 1 gears. It was oh just scared the hell out of me. But read the, read the story. I you sure know, will. I think there's I... some more interesting tidbits in there. And, it was just, you know, it was just a blast. But no, I, I never drove it on the street or beyond that. Maybe I passed the make ready department and had to turn around and come back, hmm. make another blast up the street. But I never spent any time behind the wheel. Well, speaking of cars like that and people restoring them and the crazy value in the collector market of things like Hemikudas and whatnot. Exactly. And it sounds like a lot of, much like Nikki and Motion and a Grand Spalding Dodge, and I guess out here our guys were like Dana Chevrolet, obviously oh. Yanko in Pennsylvania. Saddleback Dodge. And yeah, but it sounds like Rockville was right there with all of them as far as selling a lot of high-performance cars. So I'm wondering, do you hear from guys who go, I'm restoring a restoring a 446 pack Super B. It was sold at your dealership. Can you talk to me about it? Does that happen very often, or do people reach out to you? It for has happened, but not, you know, not as often as I hoped. Well, actually, let's go ahead and finish out your time at Rockville and tell me how that kind of how you transitioned from that into the magazine business. Well, toward the um, late in my career at uh, Rockville Center Dodge, Ram Charger sponsors Harry must remember. Uh, I started getting work from uh, Chrysler Plymouth News Bureau. They would uh, say, we've got a, I forgot what the first car that came in. It was a, oh, probably a 69 Hemi Roadrunner. They needed to do a TV show in Daytona and they wanted the car painted. So I said, sure, we can take care of that. So we uh, got a beautiful 69 Hemi Roadrunner sedan, automatic, Dana rear, probably 410 gears from track pack or whatever it was. And we painted it bright hemi orange with a uh, really a third rate vinyl roof and American mags. And my partner Howie again and I drove it to Daytona for a TV show. You drove it from Yeah, from New, New York. York to, yeah. yeah. Picked it up in Manhattan in a midtown Manhattan, drove it to the dealership, paint, trim, everything else, tune up, no fancy motor stuff or anything like that. We had 1,400 miles to go to Daytona. And uh, we, uh, we ran from the gendarmes in North Carolina on an easy, got off the freeway or the 95 and hit the back roads and just, they couldn't find us. We were just, it was so fast, it was amazing. At 150 mile an hour speed, I don't know how, how fast we went, but I had a heavy toolbox and, you know, whatever gimmicks we needed to maintain the car during the tests. And uh, got to Florida and they did the TV stuff. We hooked up with um, a fella, another past, another late acquaintance named Marshall Spiegel. He, uh, he was a writer. He wrote for uh, Scholastics magazines, 
very, very big readership. And the uh, Chrysler Plymouth guy at the time, who was uh, Kerry Smith. And uh, they did the test with, I forgot the guy's name, it was Lundgren or something along those lines. He did a car TV show. And the marshal drove the car, and they took all of the videotape and stuff like that. And then he hooked the wheel off the end of the road course and rolled the Roadrunner. And it had my roller cord, my hand-me-down inherited camera from my uncle. That's all I ever shot with. It was a double-lens reflex. It was in the glove box. And he, and he rolled the car. Was so he okay? He was fine. The car was um, mildly trashed. We, uh, we went, the next day we went to the dealership where they towed it and it needed a new uh, right front lower control arm, a disc brake rotor, and probably a caliper and some pieces and some fender straightening and stuff like that. My camera was smashed. Most of the film was exposed. I still got some shots off the roll. But uh, this is just another one of those racing stories that some of us might be familiar with. We, uh, we said, well, that's it. The car's wrecked and we're going home. So Kerry Smith had borrowed a 67 or 66 Chevy courtesy car from the local dealer. And uh, he says, come on, we're going to the airport. We got, we got tickets. So four of us, Marshall, Howie, myself, and Kerry driving, real wild man, to Daytona Airport. We get to the airport. These guys open the doors, get out, walk inside. We get out, unload our stuff. We didn't have a lot of baggage, but I had a toolbox that was, well, it just weighed a ton. You know, it was a craftsman loaded with whatever, whatever I needed to travel with. And uh, they left the car in the, middle of the, in the middle of the airport approach lane, doors open, engine running, lights on, radio playing, top down. One of the other guys had taken one of those Chevy convertibles and drove it into the Atlantic to see if the lights would stay on. But this was just a, an abandonment <laughs> case. So we get, we get, we got our tickets. The, uh, the two uh, uppity guys flew first class and we were, we were back in coach. So we're working back through the plane and I'm lugging my toolbox and I knew where they were sitting in first class. So I just slid my toolbox under the seat. And we went in the coach and sat down and we're sitting there and the plane's not going anywhere. And the captain and the first officer and some of the women on the crew come walking back through the cabin looking at me and then pointing at me. Excuse me, sir, did you leave a rather heavy object under a seat in first class as you were boarding? So that was the, uh, they went through my uh, carry-on bag, my uh, shoulder bag. I had a 200 millimeter lens in a leather case. They wanted to open it up and see what was in it. And of course, what is it? I said, 200 millimeters brings them in real close. Okay, now let's go so see what's in the heavy box. It was just, you know, tools. So they, un they understood the situation and we were able to be on our way. But that was a, a little minor hiccup in that trip. The car was repaired and driven back to New York and returned to us and we turned it back over to the fleet and I have no idea what became of it. Guys call me pretty regularly, say, whatever became of that car? Mm. Because the, it was, there was a six-pack Roadrunner in the same fleet, 69, same time period that, um, we had made sort of uh, famous with a lot of magazine coverage. So I get calls about that one. And that one has been tracked and we pretty much know we, meaning the same crew of guys I'm still in touch with, uh, are still in touch with the, the people who ended up buying it and, and own it, owning it. But I, to go to the uh, further along on this test car story, 
In 70, there was uh, the first Hemi-Cuda convertible was delivered to the garage in Manhattan on 32nd Street. And they called him out, come please get the car, it's got some problems and we need a tune-up. So it was a, not a pilot car, not a pre-production car, but it was probably one of the very first early cars. And things didn't fit quite right, so we had to go through the car and put it together so it would pass muster with testers like Joe Oldham for Cars Magazine and other guys that would come in and take the car and run it and run pictures and take it to the track. So we, uh, this, this car was um, $4,600 also, convertible, talk flight, console, bucket seats, all kinds of, you know, F6015 red stripe tires with rally wheels. So the car was, uh, the car was pretty special and uh, Michelle and I were talking about it on the drive down. She goes, you should have kept that one. I says, yeah, because they would have sold it to me for 4,600. Well, maybe, I don't know, five, less than 10 years ago, I get a call from the guy who owns the car now. He says, I hear you have some of the paperwork when you worked on the car at the dealership. And he says, yeah, I think so. Um, he goes, well, I just, I just bought the car for two and a half million. And uh, we're wondering if you might be able to give us some background on the work done on it or how you guys prepped it. So I had a few stories and no street racing stories. I, I don't remember anything about, you know, bashing the car. My brother had just gotten out of the army. He was in Korea um, after the war, obviously. But he was shuttling the cars back and forth to Manhattan. So this car... Uh, when I got it, I took the window sticker off. It's known as a Monroney after the senator who said the information has to be posted on all new cars. So I peeled the Monroney off the window and put it away. And this guy who paid two and a half million for the car said, oh, that's, that's provenance. That's what we want. That's authentication. He goes, how much for the sticker? I said, well, I got to find it first. And I know I probably have it somewhere, but... I uh, ended up finding the sticker, met him in Vegas at some Mopar show, and uh, sold him the sticker. I charged him 100 bucks for the sticker and a few more for storage. So my brother and I split the money and smiled a lot. Very nice. But uh, to see the car again after so many years. What color is the car? Red, red. Black top, mm -hmm. red, red gut. Just, just terrific. I mean, not really what you'd really want to spend $5,000 on back then, but over time it appreciates and we appreciate the cars more because you certainly can't buy them anymore. Yeah. So that went for all the cars. There were, there were so many specials, even Charlie's Cougar, which nobody appreciated back then except for the Felco Stereo. It was just, you know, nowadays that would be a prime luxury car. And back then there were, what, 6,000 at the most? At the most? AC, Ford Luxury, just, it was nice. It was, it was really nice. Hmm. So that Hemi Cuda was, my last contact was maybe seven years ago. Um, and I think the fellow who owned it lived in Arizona with quite a collection of other rich guy cars, and he sold it again. I think he got three and a half for it with the Monroney. Well, so, yeah. But, I mean, I got, I got mine. There you go. But it was the only, probably the only one that I was ever able to take advantage like that. But, but what a car. What a car. Oh, yeah. Does no. it, I mean, does it surprise you at all that they sell for that money? I'm, I'm gobsmacked, as they say. I, again, my chin is on my chest. I had no idea they would appreciate like that. Yeah. But um, 
Yeah, you no know, one I, could have predicted that. I, mean, I, I still have a 70 Barracuda that I bought uh, from my friend who, whose dad, the dentist, bought it for him. And it was a, uh, what we call a, a double fender tag car, meaning it having, had enough options on it that when Chrysler built the car, they put these stamped metal tags on the fender apron with special rivets so they can't be counterfeited or stolen or for whatever security reasons. And this is a two-tag car. And it last appeared in Giant Carcraft magazine, Harry, back when I went to work for you in 76. That car was featured with Norman Mayerson's Camaro. We built a Camaro and a Cuda. Similar approach to the suspension and powertrain on each one, and not necessarily the cosmetics. And then we, um, Donnie Green shot them somewhere up in Cagle Canyon or Lopez Canyon. On the back on the back roads for it wasn't a cover shoot but it was a an inside color spread mm -hmm. and I still have the car wow, two tags cool. and all wow. Tag, the tags aren't on it they're somewhere else but I still have the car and it that engine was uh, at the behest of uh, Harry Hibbler's uh, editor at the time Rick Vogelin when we went to build Norman was building the Camaro with a small block he wanted me to convert the Cuda from the 444 barrel that it was to a small block, which we did. And uh, my brother and I drove it from New York to California, stopped in Vegas for a bite to eat, and uh, drove to Cagle Canyon, where I, uh, I think, were you guys ever there? I don't remember. I think you might have been there. No, when Dave was there? Well, it was just a nice, a nice uh, place in the hills. It burned down in 2008 when the, when the whole hill burnt, the whole hillside crumbled. But the car survived. The car was moved. I was out of there by then. Oh, okay. Got we it. had a wood shake roof on the house. It Ooh. went up like that. Mm. Whirl, it's a jukebox. Uh, just the, the wood in the buildings in both of those. You remember the old houses, right, from Cagle? The wood came from the L.A. County Sheriff's Station, built in 1890-something. Beautiful exposed wood beams. Just uh, a terrific architectural place. Mm. And that was, uh, that was my start at uh, Giant Carcraft Magazine. From there, we just uh, we tested junk. There were, there were no a '76 Roadrunner with a 318. Mm. You know, give me a break. And then little by little, stuff started coming back. And and now the stuff that I said, there's nothing ever going to be as quick as these things. They're they're now down mid pack. And the uh, the the old muscle cars are mid pack, and the new muscle cars yeah. Are, yeah. are all here taking over. Yeah, I mean, you see it left and right, uh, yeah. Mustangs, Challengers, Camaros, um, cheap trail hawk, track hawks rather, and Durangos with supercharged 6.2 Hemi motors. That's and crazy. Cam the Camaros and the Mustangs normally aspirated 760 horsepower. Some, I guess, with a tuner stick shift. That's, uh, that's pretty wild stuff, and, and whoever would have thought Oh, yeah. And yeah. you get in, open the door, close, close it, start it, run it down the track, and you beat everything that, anything that I might have built or driven or tested back in the day. Yeah. It's uh, changed an awful lot. With, and with the air conditioning on. And, Absolutely. Yeah. Fully air conditioned. Yeah. And, and they if, handle and they stop. Everything done right. Yeah. 16-inch brakes. <sighs> yeah. A buddy of mine, this was crushing, crushing to me, uh, a buddy of mine just bought a brand new Mustang. And it's the base model Mustang. It's the cheapest one you GT. can buy. GT. No, no, no. Oh, really? It's like the cheapest Mustang. Six it's cylinder. Four-cylinder, four but it's got a t little turbo on it. 
and it's a four-cylinder uh, five-speed. I think it because it, it's a stick. I know it's a stick. If it's a modern car, it's a six-speed. Okay, so six-speed then stick. Um, real nice car, silver, little plain Jane, little Mustang, with a four-cylinder and a little turbo. And but he's a car guy, and I asked him, uh, "What's what's this? What does this thing do?" It probably I bet it's quick. And he goes. Well, the magazines tested it, and it went 14 flat in the quarter. Wow, exactly. Which made me, the, this new little base four-cylinder Mustang going 14 flat, and the first thing I thought of was, my God, and, they, and Chrysler would run those ads where you, you could buy your Roadrunner, your 383 Roadrunner, and they, wasn't it, they literally printed it in the ad, we guarantee 100 mile per hour in the quarter at 14 seconds. That was about and, right. And then with a price yeah. underneath it, which 30, was, you know, 3300 right, and something. Right. And I thought, and that was a huge deal at the time. You're, wow. I'm sure it was. Yeah, you absolutely. Know, you get your 14-second, you know, box stock Roadrunner, and here's this guy's 30 miles to the gallon. Yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. A family Mustang. call. Smooth riding, good braking, good handling. Yeah, whisper quiet and oh, all that. Yeah. So what was it like for you to, to transition into the magazine business, and how did that happen? I think I mentioned uh, Paul Putka from Cleveland. He was uh, working with me on the Black Contenders uh, Schaefer Beer Project, and uh, he knew Stevie Collison, who worked at Carcraft. I didn't know Steve. I might have met some of the other guys at one time or another. But I was working for um, Cars Magazine in New York, I started as a, uh, a managing editor, a mismanaging editor, and as the um, staff turnover over the years, I got to be the editor of some of the publications. Uh, I had time in there back in the, uh, in the 60s. Like I mentioned, when I was in the Navy, I became my, my first um, publishing project where I uh, helped edit my cruise book for my company which was, we were told, it was an award for the best cruise book for any company producing something having to do with training or military experience. So we cranked out, um, I don't know, side wire bound magazine. I shot all the photos. I was able to, they, they took me to my house in Brooklyn. I could get my roller cord, my camera, pick that up. Um, my father didn't recognize me and my hair was, you know, my ears were, raised considerably. My hair was just off my scalp with light hair. It was just a, it was a, a baldy. Um, and we turned out an award-winning publication in 1965. So that was my first experience. We had artists, writers. You know, this is a company of 100 men. And these guys came out of the woodwork to produce this package. And it was uh, his boss. I mean, it was at the time, it was boss. So like I said, we won some Admiralty Awards or whatever they were given out at the time. But um, my magazine experience started as a managing editor for Magnum Royal Publications. And half the house was cars, a quarter was puzzles, and a quarter was skin books. So it was a big mix in Manhattan on 46th Street right off of, right off of Times Square. So I stayed around there long enough to, uh, to get some experience and in the middle of all of that, we made, my buddies from Cleveland and I made a trip out to the Winter Nationals. It must have been early 70s, late 60s, and I met Steve Collison, who became a, 
a real good buddy for many years. Lived with us in Brooklyn for quite a while when he was working in Manhattan. Uh, he eventually, eventually became to be the editor of, of Cars Magazine, and I, I did some work for him. I did some street racing coverage, tech stuff, car features now and then. But Steve, uh, Steve was really another of my mentors. He's younger than I was and uh, spelled almost as good as I do. But we, uh, we combined our talents and uh, somehow stayed together for quite a few years, cranking out different magazines in different parts of the country. When I finally got to meet him at CarCraft, I also met uh, Terry Cook. And in subsequent years, I interviewed for a position with Hot Rod and Cook didn't want to hire me. Uh, I, I, I still bust his chops about this to this day. He said, no, nah, Al, you're too much of a maverick. And this is Terry Cook, you know. I mean, if there was a maverick, it was Terry, right? So that was um, another connection I made. And I guess it was 75 or so. Um, Vogelin was looking for some help and um, paid me to come out. And uh, I don't think I ever interviewed for the job. But uh, we did it on the phone, and uh, they sent me a grand, and I loaded up the Barracuda. And uh, no back seat. We pulled out the back seat and carpeted it. So we were able to move most of my uh, typewriters, none of them hot, to the, uh, to the West Coast. And I moved into um, a barn that was uh, attached to the house where Collison was living in Cagle Canyon. This is the place that burned in 08. Uh, and that was, that was my, you know, I, I typed on the kitchen table. It was uh, to go from upstairs to the downstairs. It was a ladder. I, I lived in the loft, ate in the loft, cooked in the loft, slept in the loft, and had a, you know, it was, it was a converted barn with a Wurlitzer jukebox downstairs. And the, the owner was uh, absentee, lived in Tennessee, a real cowboy, punched horses to get him to do what he wanted. It was, uh, it was a real ranch. I mean, I learned uh, more about animals in those few years that I was there. And uh, Collison later moved in with his girlfriend. Asher moved in, John Asher, uh, another car craft editor. Gee, you must remember him, Harry, tall guy, dark hair. Um, photographer. He, uh, he lived next door with his girlfriend for a while. And uh, I think it was through those guys that I met Prieto and, of course, Harry and the whole crew at uh, Giant Peterson Publishing, Polar Bear Square, as it was at uh, 8490 Sunset. And uh, led to many years of uh, you know, fun times. We didn't have the test cars that we used to, but it was, there was plenty of stuff going on. We'd, uh, Orange County was just a proverbial punch and coast from the office, so we'd be spending our days at, uh, at Orange County, occasionally LACR, but um, the, uh, the test cars were you know, we were in a def definitely a flat spot, you know, a, a fire chicken with a eagle on the hood, and a, you know, a 6.6 6 .6 liter 400 on the hood. They were, they were just too heavy, too sloppy, they disconnected. I mean, some of them were tweaked and they ran really well. V8 Vegas ran better. Um, that, was, that was the hot setup then. Mm -hmm. And Carcraft sent me all over the East Coast. I pretty much did what Roe McGonigal did when he worked for Carcraft before me and covered all the local hotshot racers, super stock stockers, um, very little, very little real fuel cars, race cars, except for the J Grenade. Um, it was, um, you know, a, sort of a slowdown. 
and I stayed there for, I don't know, I got, uh, I went to work for a Hot Rod when uh, uh, Lee Kelly took over there and hired me away from Vogelin, um, which I regret in a lot of ways because it was just the, the camaraderie. At, there was nothing like the camaraderie, camaraderie at Carcraft, but the hot, hot Rod crew was, again, Harry moved over there, C.J. Baker, uh, Gray Baskerville, who could, you know, who could forget Gray, uh, Albert Esparza was the art director, you know, very, very few talented guys like him still, you know, still exist. Probably more talented in some ways, but at the time he was, uh, he was great. Cliff Crager was the managing editor. Uh, Harry was the publisher at Carcraft. Hot Rod was a, you know, was a two floors up in the building. Uh, living in where I lived in Cagle Canyon, I, I seldom went to the office. I was, I had a reputation as a commuter. When there was a staff meeting, I'd go in. When they were shipping the book and I had to, you know, cut and paste when we were waxing together, type into the pages, I was pretty good at that with my art background. So I'd go in for that, but it was a couple of days a month. And the rest of the time I spent on the hill. And in the interim, when I was working on the uh, 70 Barracuda for the, the comparison with or the companion project to Norm Mayerson's Camaro, it was... Uh, October 76, getting cold, and I had brain fade, and the, uh, the car rolled and uh, crushed my hand. So here's Rick waiting for me to get to California to contribute. I mean, I was contributing on a monthly basis, but only for a couple of months. Rick's waiting for me to come out and join the staff officially, and I ended up crushing my hand and ending up having a finger amputated and lost most of the use of my right hand for for quite a while. But I missed one issue, Harry. One issue, December of 77, perhaps. Mm. And I, I made it up in the next issue because they forced me to. But I was, uh, my spelling got worse, I don't know why. I was never a touch typist, I was hunting peck, but I just had less to peck with. And that's, <laughs> and that's lasted in the years since, but it has not slowed my, uh, my wrenching or my writing. That's and good. Uh, that led to my, uh, my Mustang book that was inspired by Steve Collison. And there was just an awful lot of bad data going around. And Ford was very good with me and getting me test cars. And there was nothing much to talk about then, but they gave me information. And that's what I needed. So from that, I assembled uh, an, what I called at the time an editor's guide to 5 Mustangs and bound the copies myself and pasted it together, printed it out at home and carried it to the SEMA show for the editors at the time who needed a little bit more background than I thought they had. And every one of them was just welcoming. I mean, Bob McClurg, Evan Smith, Stevie Collison, Jim Camposano, uh, even Johnny Hunkins, who was working in New Jersey at the time, you know, 20 years before he went to Peterson. They appreciated the effort that I put into the package, and so I expanded on it. So from some 50 pages or 44 pages in that little book that I modeled after the Chrysler Max wedge books that came in the glove box. Oh. When you bought one, a 62 to 64, they had little booklets that came in the glove box. I did one for the Mustangs. Sold hmm. that, um, attracted the attention of a couple of publishers who said, would you be able to do something a little bit grander than that? And I said, I guess. And they offered me a, uh, a nice bit of front money to, uh, to package something, and they liked the, the books that I had already. 
and somewhere around uh, the last Mustang, Fox Mustang was built in 93. I didn't finish my book till about 2000. And shortly after that, it uh, rolled out of uh, Bentley Publishing in Cambridge, Mass, with a Ford part number, which took <laughs> wow. quite, a, quite a bit of wrangling for a Chrysler guy to get a hold of. You know, they were all aware of my Chrysler Bent, but the information was decent, so all I was doing was crossing out Ford and Crayon and writing in Chrysler. Yeah. So that, uh, that worked out pretty well, and the book is still selling. They still send me a check twice a year. Hmm. Oh, great. Great experience. Wow. And when was it, would you say, that you left, like, full-time journalism, full-time? Never. Never? I'm still working. You know, I, if I can't put in five hours a day at the keyboard, that's a day off. You know, that means there's an F1 race on TV or an IndyCar race on, on TV that I'm going to be watching and not hammering the keys. But, uh, I mean, my, my car work has slowed down a little bit. I don't do as much as I used to, but... You know, I still service the cars that we have. Not all of them run, but uh, I keep them running. Michelle worked for many years as a special ed teacher, and that got us through with our house payments, which we uh, we made when we moved to uh, we moved from Cagle Canyon, that little 1,100 square foot converted barn, to a to a big house in the high desert, and that was uh, a big change in life. Michelle's work at Michelle worked for. NHRA for many years as their advertising coordinator for Digger. And um, she worked for, uh, before that, she worked for Soft Talk Publishing. When the Macintosh first came out in 84, she carried home a box of parts, which was a Macintosh, a printer, and some cables, and said, here, the computer had just come out. So in the magazine she was working on, they just came out with their first Mac magazine and it had some of my artwork in it with a cartoon wow. that I created on a machine. They, I don't think, I remember if Wallace was living in the house at that time, but you know, we did 24 straight just trying to figure out what was going on. And it was one of the little, you know, little Mac desks. Yeah, I think they were off white or, you know, yeah, some, some, some kind of apple, apple shade of chitin. <laughs> um, well, you know, what a great little machine. And I didn't, I didn't get to buy one until 89. But um, Michelle got us through all those times of uh, light freelance duty. I was living seven miles from L.A. County Raceway, got along well with Bernie Long John. You know, when I, if he needs something and I was the only one left on the list to bring a camera, he'd, uh, he'd give me a call and I'd be able to help him out with, with what he needed there. But it was a great place to go testing. We uh, did the Ponty Hack, the hot rod. Uh, we took a Bonneville or some kind of four-door with a 455 and started taking the weight out by removing parts and then running it down the drag strip and taking more weight out by removing parts and then running it down the drag strip. So that, that was an awful lot of fun. They did it, they did it previously. I think uh, uh, Cliff Gromer at Mopar Action did it with an Imperial. Hot Rod had done it with something else more successfully than we did the Pontiac, but it was just an, an approach to going faster simply by leaving the motor alone and eliminating the weight. Hmm. That was not the most exciting test car we ever drove, but it was <laughs> interesting photos all just the same. And of course, somewhere along the line, Stevie Collison passed. None of us know really what happened to him. It was like you said, he was on the phone with Dale um, Smith. Wilson. Dale Wilson. Dale Wilson, right. He was on the phone with Harry. I was talking to him, but he died. Oh, well. Mm. 
First I thought it was Francis, and then Dale. Yeah, I, was I was pretty cool. sure it was Dale, and now it's. I was on the phone with him when, when he just went quiet. Stop talking, yeah. And pretty soon somebody else opened it. I don't need to answer. No, it's okay. It was his son, and, and I said, What do you do? Go to sleep? Because he was notorious for going to sleep. And he said, My dad just died. And he was sitting there talking. On the phone. Oh, well. Mm -hmm. Well. Well, I finished the Mustang book without him, but dedicated part of the dedications to, to Stevie, Stevie Lulu, as we call them. Hmm. Um, there were an awful lot of good times that I remember. And he was, Stevie was always in the moment. It was, he was great to be with. I was maybe a tad more thoughtful, but it didn't get us any further ahead or further behind than, than Stevie got. Hmm. So no, I haven't stopped writing, I haven't stopped working, I haven't stopped researching. I'm in the middle of a August 2017, this is now August 2020, three years on researching a current project, which I will not say any more about, but you'll know about it if I live long enough to finish it. The Mustang book, by the way, took me 14 years, mm. 440 pages, 14 years of writing, photography, and research. And like I said, I'm still getting a couple of bucks a year from it, so it's, uh, it's worthwhile. And it trained me for my current project, which might be better or just as good, I hope, hmm. as that one. But the, uh, the monthly magazines have since uh, all pretty much gone away. They, they stopped paying. They started paying what I was making in the 70s when I would contribute a black and white photo or a, a three-page double-space article to the editor. But they, they went right, right back to that quickly because they could buy stuff from contributors, no research, no fact-checking, just mm. correct the spelling sometimes and run it. <laughs> and, that, and that's where we are now. So at least when I was doing the Mustang book, I was selling pieces of it as I went along to keep eating and drinking. It was not whiskey. I was not a drinker, ever a drinker, although I love tequila. Uh, I was eating and drinking, simply selling stories to the monthlies, that I was eventually putting in my book and expanding upon, blowing them up like chickens, <laughs> making them look like turkeys, like an ad salesman. <laughs> no, I never sold advertising. But I did produce the ads we ran in Superstock Magazine and some of the early stuff in those, uh, the Ebbets Field Dodge and the Rockville Center Dodge ads I produced with, with press type, no computers, it was all hand laid out. My training as a draftsman was a big help. And, uh, I will have to go back to my high school and say that the, um, the aeronautical course that I took, I was always behind in English and history, so that meant I had to make those up and I got behind in my math and I was learning subjects that required the calculus that I wasn't being taught, but I managed to get through, I was good at test taking, so I managed to, through, to get through the test. We had to take a state test at the end of three years of high school technical education and the formulas that they taught us by rote, and eventually we came to understand for real meaning, still apply today. When in the 70s, the, aero, the auto companies were all focusing on aerodynamics, I had all the formulas memorized for measuring lift and drag and camber and caster and the, the square footage of the car going through the wind and all of this stuff I had learned 30, 40 years before that still applied because, like I said, I worked on a rotary engine from World War I. Well, the theory was also based on 
science from World War I, a little bit added in World War II, and then Korea, and then jets. So it was um, little, little by little by little, it increased my education, and, and I kept on trying to stay on top of it, like I do now. The Mustang book was, like I say, a big part of it was Steve Collison, but I was also trying to figure out computers, because the carburetors were over in 85, you know, 86, the Mustangs were all injected. Central fuel injection, port fuel injection. I had to figure out some way around that. When I started getting interesting in Macintoshes and my personal old Apple IIs, I realized that the, the Motorola chip that ran my old Apple II was the same one in uh, Bernstein's Race Pack computer. So there was a connection and the, the lines of code that went in to define stuff that they were doing to you know, measure wheel spin or measure no wheel spin was the same lines of code that I was cranking into these basic computers. We take classes at the local computer stores at night and learn some of the basic languages of computer programming. Michelle went to actual computer school to learn business computers and stuff like that, but then went to work for National Drags, so go figure. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was at least ahead of them on that curve anyway. Well, that is... Uh it's wonderful to hear that you're just still hard at it as ever, because I, I, I never know, because I'm, I'm living in the past. It's four years since we so spoke, right? If I, the last time I read something of yours is probably something you wrote 50 years ago. Good knowing, chance. Knowing me. Um, but thank you so much for sharing your story with us. And, well, thanks for listening. And, uh, I wish and, I had more, more details. When I was, uh, when I, before I started shooting photos, there was an awful lot of stuff that I missed. So I draw. That's when I made my cartoons, mm. you know, and sketches and things like that. So if I'm out on the road without it, if I was out on the road without a camera, without a cell phone, I would be able to draw what I was envisioning or picturing or the experiences that I was having. So it came in pretty handy. Mm. I haven't drawn much recently, but I would love to tire, retire and uh, go back to it. Mm. Well, let's hope you... Uh... You get to do that, too. I still own a pen. <laughs> there you go. Well, all right. Now we are talking another great episode of the Rodcast brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation. Special thanks to Al Kirschenbaum for his time. It was not a short drive for him big time investment so that this could be possible i just couldn't have had a better time sitting down and just talking with al and getting a story i i hope you all enjoyed that as much as i did we want to also thank cole Kuntz, alex vendler ken blackwell these are the guys on the production side that make these things possible and it's it's been a joy to to do all the interviews that we did in in 2020 with those guys and uh, looking forward to doing a whole lot more. So thanks so much, guys. Our PR person is Angela Helton with social media management coming from Crystal Hayes. Technical assistance from Eric Curtis and Katie Sloan. And as always, all broadcast music is written and performed by me. Special thanks to our archivist and historian, Jim Miller, who is always doing the heavy lifting and keeping us honest. The American Hot Rod Foundation is a 501c3 nonprofit and was founded in 2002 by Stephen Carroll Mamishian for the sole purpose of documenting and preserving the history of hot rodding. 
Without their generosity and passion for this work, none of this would be possible. So as always, if you'd like to learn more about the foundation, please hop on over to our website, www.ahrf.com. You can support us there by checking out our merchandise, making a donation, or best of all, joining in the fun, becoming a member of the American Hot Rod Foundation. We have a membership program that's been up and running for about a year now, and uh, we'd love for everybody listening to this to uh, sign up, join in, and be a supporter of our work. You can also follow us across all our social media channels, Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, where we'll provide you with daily posts uh, consisting of historical images pulled from the Foundation archives, as well as information on future episodes of the Rodcast. So, once again, huge thanks to our great friend Al Kirschenbaum for his generosity, for being such a good friend of the American Hot Rod Foundation, and for everything he's contributed to our great American pastime. We hope you've enjoyed this episode, and we hope you'll join us next time right here for another episode of The Rodcast. Thanks for listening to another great episode of the Rodcast, brought to you by the American Hot Rod Foundation.